Okay, our text for today is Romans chapter 1. Uh, we'll read 13 through 18, but we'll focus on 16 and 17. Let's pray. Our Father, we need you this morning. That's why we're here. We need your help. We need you to daily breathe uh, life-giving breath into our lungs and the life of faith into our souls. We ask you to do this by your living word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Romans 1, 13 through 18. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Amen. This is God's word. There's a word we sometimes use, uh, oftentimes in apologetics, uh, theodicy, not the odyssey like Homer's epic poem, but theodicy is uh, in the Greek a combination of two words, theo, dike, or theos and dikaios, God and just. And so theodicy is the justification of God. Namely, how do we square the presence of evil in the world with the presence of a, a all-good and all-powerful God is the question of theodicy. I think there's certainly value in searching out these questions, but I sometimes would like to define theodicy as the exercise in which puny man pretends to preside over the tribunal of God. As though uh, we fully understand all the things that God is doing in the world or perceive that, that maybe they seem unjust to us and that we have somehow a right to decide whether God is just or not. The work of theodicy is usually done in response to atheists, objections that if God was really good, there would be no evil in the world. What they're failing to realize is that if God were following their demands, they would be wiped from the face of the earth because they are not good and neither are we. There's a failure to recognize that the scariest attribute of God is in fact his justice. Martin Luther was a man on the other end of the spectrum who recognized this fact that God was just. He's a man born into a system of, of the world where the solution to man's problem of the justice of God was essentially do better. Try to please God by your works. 
and he was overcome with the enormity of this task and, and all the others should have been and so should we be overcome with the task of trying to please God by our works because as we know we cannot do it famously after becoming a monk he would drive his confessor Johann von Staupitz crazy once spending six hours in confession also famously leaving confession and returning to confession because he had forgot a sin he once said of himself I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery it was I if I kept on any longer I should have killed myself with vigils prayers reading and other work he had once uh, admitted to von Staupitz his hatred for God, uh, whose righteous demands were so unattainable. Luther was a gifted teacher. He taught Bible at the University of Wittenberg and studying the book of Romans for his class in a, the, the heated room. His study in the tower of the black cloister in Wittenberg is when he encountered the grace of God. This is often called his tower experience, and the text before him was Romans 1.17. That was the text that flipped the switch for Luther. The light shone on him and began to spread from him out and into the Protestant Reformation. So, I want to take a look at Romans 1.17 today, but we'll back, back up by looking at verse uh, 16. And before we do, I just want to help us frame this discussion by asking basic questions. Are you acquainted with the perfect righteousness of God? Have you grappled with how you stand before a holy and living God? How you will stand before the judgment seat of God? Have you, like many, just assumed that the justice of God is, means good news for you? Or are you aware that the justice of God on your own is bad news for you? With that in mind, let's consider how the Word of God in Romans helps us to grapple with these most fundamental and crucial questions. Uh, in verses 13 through 15, we read how Paul's desire to come to the Romans uh, was because he wanted to preach the gospel to them. He wanted to preach the gospel to them. And initially, we can point out the contrast between what might be bad news, the righteousness of God, with the gospel, the message containing good news. And why is it that Paul wants to preach good news to them? We have here in verse 16, the first in a series of fours. Four, the word four tells us why. It tells us the reason for things. We have uh, three in this text and more that continue through the rest of Romans 1. But these series of fours or reasons, and these, this tells us why Paul wanted to preach the gospel. And you might accept, expect him to say, because... I love the gospel, or because I want you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But oddly and interestingly, he puts it in the negative in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say that? 
Well, Paul is fully aware, as we've seen throughout Acts, that the world casts shame on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world hates the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet he's not ashamed of it. Contrary to popular belief, it is intellectually satisfying and it is morally pure. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So right there he's admitting this is folly to the world. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So tomorrow night, make two signs. One that says uh, tracks given out here and one sign that says candy. Put one out for one hour and another out for another hour and tally the visitors. But candy preaches, Right. It's easy to preach a message of peace and well-being and free love, no condemnation here, but to preach a message that is despised by the world is hard. It requires conviction to preach something that would cause shame to a person. That's why he says, I'm not ashamed. John Murray says, the emotion of shame with reference to the gospel when confronted with the pretensions of human wisdom and power betrays unbelief to the truth of the gospel. And the absence of shame is the proof of faith. So, to state it in the converse, which he essentially does in verse 15, Paul's demonstrating his enthusiasm to preach the gospel in Rome by acknowledging the world's view of it and his conviction to preach it anyway. The second four in our text is why, why he's answering now, why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Or why is he enthusiastic about preaching the gospel in Rome? And he says, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. This is a bad analogy. I'll say that up front, but I think it helps. Imagine you make a batch of chicken noodle soup for a sick friend, really sick, maybe dying of cancer. And you bring the soup over and, and she drinks the soup and immediately she's made well. This soup has been invested with divine power. So what do you do? Of course, you bottle it up in little vials as you can and deliver it to as many people as you can. See, where we go wrong sometimes with people is as we think all kinds of things will save them. Oh, if they can, if they can just get off of their addiction and, and if they can just get off their rear and get a job or if they can just get along, right? But what they need to get is get saved. Now, all those things are good, of course, but what they really need is to be saved. And God has not invested any sort of inspirational talk, any 12-step program, any counsel, any wisdom with the power of salvation except the gospel. The gospel has the power of salvation. Do we think of the gospel in this way? Do we understand that the word of God has efficacious power? That the gospel has the power to effect salvation in people. 
that as God's words are brought to the world, um, just as God brought the world into existence by his word, the word of the gospel has the power to bring dead people to life. That the perfectly righteous God who owes men nothing has chosen to save men from eternal wrath and to eternal glory and communion with him through the powerful working of the gospel. Now, here's why uh, the gospel is not magic soup. Uh, Why not everyone who hears the gospel is automatically saved by the gospel is because it's not our power for salvation. It's not Paul's power for salvation. It's God's power for salvation. It's just, and it, it is the salvation with a specific purpose, which is simultaneously uh, restrictive and expansive. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And there's a qualifier here. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this is restrictive in some sense, this salvation. Uh, it's, it's restrictive because the power of salvation, the power of the gospel, is only actualized in those who believe, in those who have faith. This is the first of three references to faith in these two verses. And faith can be either translated faith or belief. Um, the Greek word pistis. Uh, faith is, of course, as you know, the emphasis of this whole epistle is essentially justification by faith alone. Um, so it is those who believe and only those who believe who are rescued from destruction and enjoy life. Uh, so Paul's enthusiasm is not in the fact that he will uh, rescue everyone who comes within earshot of hearing the gospel, but in being an instrument of God's power. Just, just as God told him in Corinth, stay here, keep preaching. There are many in this city who are my people. So the restrictive nature of the power of God for salvation is immensely freeing for us because the gospel is not our power for salvation. It's not that if we just say the right word or, or with the right inflection or if we use the right piano melody in the background, then people will buy into the gospel. No, the gospel itself, the message is the power of God for salvation. So it's restrictive in the sense that it's only those who believe, but it's also expansive. He says, to everyone who believes. In the previous verses, in verses uh, 13 and 14, he mentioned all these people he was under obligation to. Greeks, barbarians, wise, the foolish. Here he just summarizes by uh, Greek and Jew, or Gentile and Jew. But it is for everyone who believe, no holds barred. This is important for us as Calvinists, and sometimes we mix this up, that because we believe in election, because we believe in limited atonement, that we sometimes forget about the free offer of the gospel. That we can really say to to people, this is good news for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He died for sinners like you. The free offer, anyone who believes. That's John 3.16. And we're not saying anything about how they believe, but anyone who believes will be saved. That's the gospel message. That's the free offer of the gospel. So in that sense, it is expansive. 
Now the third, four, why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? In verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. I, I watched a, a short video about a, uh, a private art collection at Gibbs Farm in New Zealand. Maybe you've seen this or heard of this. Uh, it's a beautiful farm, rolling hills, and all throughout the hills are these just immense sculptures that this, this ranch or farm owner brought in. And it's just a private collection. This is not even his home. It's a getaway home for his family. But occasionally, maybe once a month, they let the public in to see the art. And in this way, the art collection is revealed to the public. It's made known to them. It's made known to their sense perception. They can absorb it. They can take it in. And certainly that's something that the gospel does with the righteousness of God. It reveals it to us. It makes it known to us. His absolute justice, his supreme moral perfection, they're made known in the gospel. But but Paul's has a much deeper meaning to the word revealed here. It's more than just just somebody pulling a sheet from an art piece and letting you see it. But his righteousness is revealed or made manifest in an operative sense. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because he manifests his power himself actively and savingly through the gospel. I think of it more akin to the way that doctors would use the word manifest. Uh, the Greek word is translated revealed or manifest. Uh, but they, they talk in terms of how does the disease manifest? How does it reveal itself? It's, it's revealed, but it's revealed because the disease is acting upon the body in a particular way. And the revelation is symptomatic. So God has not only displayed his righteousness through the gospel for all to see, but it's revealed in an active, operative way in our lives. This leads us to ask the question, what is the righteousness of God? First, we have to just say that the righteousness of God is one of his attributes. The Shorter Catechism defines God this way. God is the spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice. Justice and righteousness are the same word in the Bible. Goodness and truth. Justice is essential to who God is. I was speaking with an irate uh, unbeliever yesterday who was accusing God of all kinds of things. Just for, God, God is wicked for sending anybody to eternal hell, to, to torment. That's unjust. That's unfair. But in truth, and we know this, that God can do no other when rebel hearts rebel against him because he is just in his character. He must punish Sin. Anything short of eternal punishment would be to minimize the infraction against eternal perfection. And this is why Luther hated God's righteousness. While many others seemed to enjoy willful blindness and ignorant bliss, he trembled at the righteousness of God. Because by God's grace, he could see plainly that he did not measure up. He could not satisfy perfect justice. 
So that's something of the righteousness of God. But what about the righteousness of God in that sense is good news. Paul says it's good news. That sounds like bad news. The gospel reveals my damnation in that sense. So we can see why Luther was exasperated by this verse. And then the lights came on in the tower. And I just want to read for you his own uh, accounting of that event. Um, and you can see his, his change of mind, his shift. He said, But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then I certainly grumbled vehemently and got, got, and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and wrath? This was how I was raging with wild, disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it as it is written. The just person shall live by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice that is that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once I felt I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. And I, I suppose he had. Immediately, I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I ran through the Scripture from memory and found that other terms had analogous meanings. The work of God, that is what God works in us. The power of God, by which he makes us powerful. The wisdom of God, by which he makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. I exalted this sweetness, sweetest word of mine, the justice of God. With as much love as before I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. Afterward, I read Augustine's On the Spirit in the letter in which I found what I had dared not hope for. I discovered that he too interpreted the justice of God in a similar way, namely as that which God clothes us when he justifies us. You see that powerful shift that took place in Martin Luther's mind in that day in the tower. And I hope you hear what he's saying, that the righteousness of God, that, that God revealed operatively in the lives of believers unto salvation through the powerful working of the gospel is God's own righteousness. It's a perfect righteousness given to us by God. God uh, John Murray just calls it God-righteousness, which I think is a good term. Which, which is what we need if we're going to stand before the ju judgment seat of God, is God-righteousness. Even human perfect righteousness, a perfect 
report card of righteousness for a human, which we know we can't attain. But if we could, even that would only bring us up to neutral. And we need a positive righteousness, a perfect righteousness to stand before the living God. So he has given us his own righteousness. It's a God righteousness from God obtained by faith. Which is why he says next that it's from faith for faith. From faith for faith. This is one of the more difficult sayings, I think, perhaps in Scripture. Uh, Thomas Schreiner lists nine possibilities for what this could mean. Uh, I was telling Brian and Michael the other day that Brian Borgman listed 13 possibilities uh, for what this phrase from faith for faith or from faith to faith means. A few examples um, from Thomas Schreiner lists a few uh, it, from the faith of the Old Testament to the faith of the New Testament is one that people put forward from the faith of the law to the faith of the gospel, from the faith of the preachers to the faith of the hearers, from the faith of the present to the faith of the future, from the faith of words we hear now to the faith that we will possess what the words promise from the faith of faithfulness of God to the faith of human beings, from the faithfulness of Christ to the faith of human beings, from smaller to greater faith, from faith as the ground to faith as the goal. Uh, So there's a lot of options for this tiny little phrase, from faith to faith or for faith. Uh, A few I find helpful. Calvin's view is, I think, reasonably good. He's one of those who would say that it's uh, an issue of degrees, essentially from one degree of faith to the next, that we grow in faith. Uh, I think I find John Murray's take the most helpful. He said that from faith is the source of of the revelation or the means by which we receive it. So we receive uh, the gospel of salvation through faith. So that's from faith. And then to faith is the recipient of that faith. I'm the recipient. I'm the one who believes. He takes this from Galatians uh, 3.22. The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So I'm the one who receives to faith, and I obtain it by faith. So I find Murray's view uh, the most most helpful, um, although I think at the end of the day, nearly everyone agrees with the simplicity of what Sinclair Ferguson said. Maybe he just means it's all of faith. And however we work out the details, that is clearly the emphasis here, that it is by faith. Even as the gospel is the power of God to all who believe, so the revelation of righteousness of God is given by the instrument of faith to every last person who has faith without exception and only those who have faith. And Paul goes on and he grounds this this, uh, phrase in the scriptures, in Habakkuk 2, 4 is where he quotes from, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the whole point of the book of Habakkuk, and we got to go through it a couple of years ago, is trust me. God say, trust me. Faith. The whole point is faith. Whatever's happening, stand confident in the Lord. The book is a a conversation, maybe even an argument between the prophet and God. 
Initially, Habakkuk complains, why, Lord, are you allowing violence and evil to prevail in Judah? And and God essentially responds and says, uh, I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told, for I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians, and they'll be instruments for punishment for wicked Judah. And of course, at this Habakkuk, the, the, the Chaldeans, they need to be judged more than we do. So uh, Habakkuk is part of his complaint to God about the Chaldeans in, in Habakkuk 1, 14 through 17. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things. They have no ruler. He, that is Chaldea, brings up all of them with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them from his uh, in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? That's Habakkuk's complaint. And did you notice the, the familiar prepositional phrase there, by them he lives. The just shall live by faith. By the, the nets the Chaldeans live. By his violent accrual of the nation's wealth in the name of idols, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. That's how he lives. But in 2.4, God responds again to the effect of, trust me, Habakkuk, have faith in me. Yes, Chaldea lives in pride, his time is coming, he lives on borrowed time and stolen goods, but how will you live? What is the great mark of the righteous remnant of the people of God? It is those who will trust him. He says in, in 2.4, Behold his soul, that is the soul of Chaldea, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And God continues to announce woes against Chalde- the Chaldeans. And finally Habakkuk responds, remembering how God has always taken care of uh, and acted on behalf of his people in the past. And he comes to a place of resting in the sovereign power of the Lord. And I'll just read for you the end of, of Habakkuk here, uh, three, twelve through 19. Habakkuk speaking to God, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take the joy of the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. It's just a picture of faith, of finally submitting to God's... He doesn't understand God's program, but he submits to God's program. He says, the Lord is my strength. Not just the Lord gives me strength, but the Lord is my strength. Just as he is my righteousness. I spoke to a person this week who said, I feel just utterly broken and and helpless and as though God just wants to be done with me. I said, that's a good place to be. Because only when we are emptied of ourselves and filled with the fullness of the saving righteousness of God will we find peace with Him. The righteous do not live by self-confidence, by works of righteousness, by the toil of their hands, or like the Chaldeans, by the evil of their hands. The righteous live by faith. Luther was reduced to nothing by the righteousness of God. And only then did he believe the gospel of free grace and receive the righteousness of God. Faith is and and always has been in the Old Testament and the New Testament the instrument for salvation. There's one program and it's the program of faith. Salvation by faith alone. Let's conclude with this. In verse 18, we have one more for. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Notice the parallel between 18 and 17. For the righteousness of God is revealed, for the wrath of God is revealed. Surely this word revealed here in 18 carries with the same active force that it does in verse 17. That God is is actively revealing His wrath against the sinfulness of mankind. That's our condition. That's our state. We stand condemned among the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men on our own two feet. So it would seem that we need not a, a theodicy, but an anthroodicy. That's not a word. I tried to see if that was a word, but I think it should be a word. Justification of man. How will man be justified in light of his evil? That's the question. How will we escape the wrath of God, the just wrath of God revealed from heaven? We will escape because God has revealed his own righteousness in the gospel and actualized it in our lives by the gift of faith. So as we celebrate Reformation day tomorrow to the degree that that's a thing that you do Uh, remember this gospel is at the heart of the reformation the imputed righteousness of God by faith apart from works of the law Amen